Hi, everyone. This is Dallas, producer of the Mercatus Policy Download. On today's episode, Mercatus scholar Matthew Mitchell and Mercatus Distinguished Adjunct Fellow Bruce Yandel discuss Bruce's December 2019 economic situation report and some of the most talked about topics heading into 2020. They take a dive into the trade wars, Trump's tariffs and their agricultural impacts, and who's really losing when it comes to paying for these tariffs. They also touch on the impeachment proceedings and its possible impact on the economy. And lastly, to end on a lighter note, they recommend some books they think will be great stocking stuffers this holiday season. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host for today's episode, Matthew Mitchell. I'm a senior research fellow here at the Mercatus Center, where I direct the Equity Initiative. Our research at the Equity Initiative focuses on the economics of favoritism and government privilege. My guest today is Bruce Yandel. Bruce is one of my favorite economists, and I might even say one of my favorite people. He's a distinguished adjunct fellow at the Mercatus Center and Dean Emeritus of Clemson's College of Business and Behavioral Science. Today, we'll be discussing Bruce's latest economic situation report published by the Mercatus Center earlier this month. In it, Bruce details the current state of the U.S. economy, touching on the employment rate, the growth rate, uncertainty, trade, and the potential economic effects of impeachment. I hope we get a chance to talk about all of these issues with Bruce. Um, And while I have him, I'm also going to ask him a little bit about what should be on the economist's wish list for this holiday season. Welcome, Bruce. Matt, it's a pleasure speaking with you, and thanks so much for your kind comments. Looking forward to the conversation. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's kick it right off with something ripped from the headlines, trade wars. So it seems like every day there's something new. Last week, we were reading about new tariffs on uh, champagne and French cheese. So it looked like the trade war was heating up. Um, This week, uh, the Democrats and President Trump came together to come to an agreement about uh, the new NAFTA, USMCA. And then this morning, I read that there is a, a new deal Um, perhaps with China. Also in the mix uh, this week, the New York Times reported that the Trump administration is sort of pushing to deny um, the WTO a quorum. So it's going to make resolving trade disputes more difficult. Uh, What do you make of all of this? Matt, for people who lack uncertainty, it's just a movable feast uh, from one day to the next. (laughs) Does anyone like uncertainty? (laughs) <laughs> the, uh, I haven't found that person, but uh, okay. but, but I'm, I'm hoping that there is because uh, it it certainly has. We've had a lot of it, um, and and it does move from day to day. But President Trump is being true to the name he attached to himself. He is the tariff man. Uh, mm-hmm. I think from his standpoint, he has found it to be an excellent instrument uh, to use uh, in efforts to bring about changes that he desires in terms of international policy. But but it is it is a feast of uncertainty and and Matt, as you know, there's that index that is turned out daily, the economic policy uncertainty index, turned out by some economists at Chicago and Stanford. And uh, uh it 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 gets a few spikes uh when news is made about whether or not tariffs that have been promised are going to be delivered such as those right now at the moment. President Trump had indicated that there would be an extension of tariffs, an expansion of tariff coverage on Chinese goods starting December 15th. And so here we are on the 13th. And and there was an indication yesterday that some accord had been reached with the Chinese and U.S. trade negotiators that would postpone or maybe erase uh, those expected increases. So the, the, the ink has not gone on the papers yet, but it is an indication that 
that one element, a major element, I would say, of trade wars may be diminishing. And it's sort of interesting mm-hmm. that, we, you know, we view it as good news, but it's sort of like, you know, the fellow hitting himself in the head with a hammer, and he stops and says, doesn't this feel good? Uh, <laughs> because the, uh, the tariff wars were self-imposed. The costs associated with them were costs that we generated. And now, in a sense, we're backing up a bit, and some of those costs are being reduced. The big question is, are we getting to the goals that that the president and others have in mind? In other words, why are we engaged in this war? Mm-hmm. Well, and I suppose one question there is, what exactly are the president's goals? And there's been a lot of debate about this. He has referred to himself as the tariff man, as you, as you point out. And he says he likes tariffs. Uh, he seems to see upsides to using tariffs to... Uh, try to get concessions from the Chinese, but also he seems to be happy with the revenue uh, raised by the tariffs themselves. But then at other times, he says he's a free trade guy and that he, really the only, he doesn't want high tariffs. He just wants to use them as a way to get the Chinese to stop some of their protectionism. Um, what, what do you make of that? Well, in some of the in some of the news coverage just just over the last twenty four hours, as as it, as it appeared that uh, that some agreement had been reached, what President Trump calls a phase one agreement, which suggests there's going to be a second one at least. Um, mm-hmm. But but in the in the news release, uh, there was an indication that a couple of other troublesome areas are being addressed. One of those is uh, is protection enforcement of intellectual property rights, uh, which has been an ongoing complaint uh, with U.S. firms and others from other countries who build facilities in China, and in doing so, they know they're putting at risk their trade secrets, or either their patents, their intellectual mm-hmm. property rights may walk out the door. And so there is there is some indication that China is making certain promises with respect to that. Another bone of contention has to do with what is called currency manipulation, where uh, one looking at data would say, hey, the Chinese are manipulating the value of their currency in order to give themselves an advantage in international markets. Uh, which is to suggest we don't do that, but other uh-huh. countries do, we all we all in a sense manipulate our currency, uh, maybe not deliberately for trade reasons, but for other reasons. But in any case, that seems to be being addressed uh, in this new accord. And another just mm-hmm. outright trade item, uh, which of which relates to the sector in our economy that was probably hurt most by the trade wars, that being agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, China had been, until the trade wars, the number one U.S. market for agricultural products produced here, particularly for soybeans, hard grains, pork. And and that market diminished, fell by 24% after the wars commenced in 2018. And so now there is a promise from the Chinese that, hey, we're going to buy a lot of soybeans. And you know, in his exuberance, uh, as reported in the paper, President Trump said they're going to buy $50 billion of grains in 2020. Well, China's never bought at that level. Uh-huh. The most we've ever seen from the U.S. is in the 20s, 22, $23 billion. But nonetheless, uh, sounds like Santa Claus to me, and, it, and uh, I'm sure the grain producers and sellers in the U.S. are, are glad to see some immediate recovery of their market. Yeah. But, but you know, you were, Matthew brushed up against that thing of tariffs, and and I guess it, it's always a matter of your point of view. 
course, but when a country like the U.S. is in a habit of running deficit and expanding federal debt at a quick pace, uh, revenue coming into the Treasury may look good no matter what the source. And uh, this administration has pointed out that the revenues that we're getting from our tariffs are, are helping to offset losses elsewhere. It's a pretty big number. Right now, we're running at about $70 billion annually in tariff revenues. That's up from what had been a kind of norm of 7 to 10% annually. It began to rise with the trade mm. wars. But, but if you want to look at that number in another way, you would ask, well, who's, who's, who's really paying this? So who's yeah, paying, that's what I was going to ask. Who, who's losing? 70 yeah. billion. And so we have to look at that, too. So who is losing? Um, you know, uh, President Trump, of course, insists that the Chinese are paying the tariffs. Most economists have a similar reaction that they have when a progressive uh, politician says, oh, don't worry, I'm going to just impose a tax on the rich and nobody else will pay it. Um, you know, who really pays the tariffs? Well, if we, you know, if we get down to just the simple mechanics of it, uh, we can say, well, there's a ship that is coming into port we can take any ports. The college, the port of Charleston, South Carolina, is a big one on the East Coast, and so a ship is approaching. It's it's coming from China. Uh, it's loaded with Chinese goods, and in order to get permission for that ship to dock and unload, someone has to go down to the customs office and clear it, clear the merchandise. That's some American that goes down to the customs office or an agent for that American, and when they go in the door and they say, okay, what have we got to do to unload the merchandise that, that my client or that I have ordered from China? And someone will say, well, you got to pay a bill here. And so the, tariff, the tariffs or custom duties have to be paid before the goods are unloaded, and they get paid for by an American uh, paying with American money. And so it's not some Chinese that shows up there and says, right. hey, I'm going to pay to get these goods off the ship. It's an American. And then we say, well, okay, so, so there's an increase, perhaps a 25% tariff as a result of the uh, trade wars, uh, and somebody shells that out. Okay, well, mm -hmm. does the check bounce? Who has the money in the bank, and where did it come from? And so someone buys the goods, they pay more for the goods. If they're consumer goods, then there's an attempt to push that cost forward in consumer markets, at least part of it, if not all of it. Mm -hmm. If it's hard to push forward, then the firm who bought the goods says, well, we're going to swallow real hard and take some of this out of our hide temporarily, uh, maybe. And so our profits won't be as high in the next quarter as they would be. And we're going to ask mm -hmm. our employees to forego wage increases this year. And so that burden does shift around, but you never find someone saying, well, we're going to call on the Chinese over there to send us a check. <laughs> the irony is that we may be selling bonds to the China. We may be borrowing from the Chinese to help to fund uh, the deficit that we're running in our trade. And which again, mm -hmm. now then that adds to the other deficit that we started talking about at the beginning, that these uh, revenues might help offset. But it seems to, be, seems to me, Matt, that it's really hard to show using economic analysis and data that, that the Chinese people are paying even a part of the tariffs. There's some possibility there. The producer of those Chinese goods who wants to keep selling in America in the face of higher prices being imposed.
might say, wow, we're going to take some of it out of our hide, and we're going to temporarily lower some prices. And so then some of that burden does fall on Chinese producers. But most of it, and most likely all of it, will get pushed forward to American buyers. Yeah. Now, one of the things when it, when we talk about this, you know, essentially what you are painting here is a picture that um, economists would be rather familiar with. Uh, maybe the best way that they uh, have to present this is on a chalkboard, um, you know, where you show um, what's called a deadweight loss or an excess burden. Um, and this is an important concept in economics. It's basically the idea that often you have situations where policy causes some people to win and other people to lose. In this case, the winners are um, domestic producers. Um, they are able to capture more of the market and they're able to charge at a higher price than they otherwise would. Uh, the losers are American um, consumers who have to pay higher prices for goods and services. And the deadweight loss or the excess burden emerges because the losers lose more than the winners win. And I think this is a powerful point. It's a good point. We should make it in economics uh, when we teach people about the effects of trade and trade barriers. But there is a, a response to it. And uh, I want to get your reaction to it. So the response is, okay, yeah, I, I believe you, economist. A barrier to trade raises prices. And if you add up all of the extra amount that Americans pay for goods and services, and you compare that to the extra profits that American producers get from the trade barrier, yeah, I believe you that the costs outweigh the benefits. But I, I really still don't care because those costs are so minor to the consumers. You know, they pay a little bit extra for socks each year. Um, I don't care about that because the producers, it's protecting an entire job. You know, it's there's some guy in South Carolina who has a $50,000 a year job because of this protectionism. Um, and so I'm willing to pay that price. Um, have you heard that argument? And if so, what, what's your reaction to it? I surely have, Matt. And, and, and I th you know, there, there are a couple of thoughts that, that run through my mind uh, as, as, you know, as listening to you speak there about this. And it is, and it is a common response. The first thought is, there's something about us and our makeup that comes from evolutionary forces by which we emerged over millions of years, we human beings, and we emerged in small groups, and we think a whole lot more of members of our small group than members of any other group. Mm -hmm. and, and we sort of like cooperating and, and feeling that, that we are doing things together. We pull together. We win together. That's part of that evolutionary force that's in our DNA, which says, mm -hmm. well, those are foreigners anyhow, and these are my neighbors here. In fact, they say maybe some of my kinfolk who work in this plant, and you're telling me that uh, they may lose their jobs if they don't get some protection. I'm for their jobs. I'm opposed to the foreigner if it comes down to it. So there's that kind of thinking that mm -hmm. probably there's a predisposition that is there even to say well wouldn't it be wonderful if we were totally self-supporting that that if we produced everything we don't have to buy from anybody who lives outside our neighborhood mm -hmm. and when you think about that you know you take it to the extreme boy i would be quite poor if i had to make everything that i were to consume you know i you know, I'm, I might be okay at building a few things, you know, maybe a desk, but I couldn't build a uh, roof over my head. I certainly couldn't make my clothes. I certainly couldn't heat my home and um, capture all my food. It would be, if you take it to the extreme, you can see, you know, that kind of self-sufficiency can be impoverishing. 
That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, very quickly you're you're saying I'm not really sure I can get a tomato to come out of the ground, and uh, <laughs> so right. so I hope my next door neighbors are better gardeners than I am. But but we know very quickly that this gets us to the discussion of division of labor and specialization, and division of labor and specialization when carried to the world then enables us potentially to really find our niche and then to expand the market for mm-hmm. our niche products, uh, which mm-hmm. which enables wealth to increase and world GDP growth to rise, as, as we've experienced in modern times. But you know that other thing that you mentioned about the individual who says, well, you're just asking me to pay a penny or two more when I go shopping for T-shirts. Uh, at, at the department store, and I don't mind that. But the effects are cumulative across mm-hmm. many, many products. And in a sense, it's almost invisible. And, and Matt, that gets us to the point that you and I both uh, enjoy working on in, our, in economics, and that is what we have here is a cost that is small, that is spread across a huge number of people, and benefits mm-hmm. that are concentrated across few people in protected industries, perhaps. And politically, that's just banana pudding. That couldn't be more lovely for political purposes where you can spread costs across a vast number who may not even be aware that they're being hit with a few pennies cost. And you can bundle that up into benefits that go to a special interest group. And if we're speaking about politicians, that help you keep your job as a politician and in source. So this is sort of the mother milk of a democracy. It's part of right. our world. Right. Well, and you also touched when you, when you talk about specialization, I think you touch on an important point here that is um, a little bit more nuanced, which is the story I started with the excess burden or the deadweight loss. That's a, a static inefficiency. You know, it's a, it's a cost, but it's a cost at any one point in time. Arguably, there's also more of a dynamic cost here as well, uh, which dynamic efficiency is the ability to reallocate resources quickly to their highest valued use or to make sure that you're, the economy essentially is evolving over time. And the story of gains through specialization presumes that we are specializing in a way that's sustainable and based on you know our true comparative advantage. But it occurs to me that part of the problem with trade barriers is that it encourages unsustainable specialization. It encourages um, firms and people to acquire skills in ways that really they probably shouldn't be acquiring those skills. You know, to, to put a to put it uh, precisely, you know, think about all of the protections that were afforded to the auto industry over the 20th century. All those protections essentially encourage the auto industry to forget about its competitors overseas, to ignore some of its customers because it didn't have to, it was, it was you know, laboring behind a wall of protection. It, at year in, year out, lured people into that industry who could have gone into other industries, healthcare, finance, um, you know, any number of service industries. And Ultimately, I think that was un- an unsustainable pattern of specialization so that when you know the financial crisis hit in 2008, you suddenly had thousands upon thousands of people with skill sets that were really not attuned to what customers wanted. That's such an important point, Matt. And, and uh, you know, the, I sometimes want to think about our economy or any economy as, as sort of a living organism – 
It's not, but if we think about it that way, it's growing, it's expanding, it's contracting, it's adjusting, it's renewing itself through time Mm -hmm. uh, with the emergence of new assets and resources, and it's declining or expanding. And the... But 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 ultimately, not ultimately, but with regard to any of these regulatory episodes, including tariffs, trade, which is of course the key topic right now, um, mm-hmm. we we grant some kind of protection. Uh, one of the earliest rounds of tariffs in the Trump administration was for aluminum and steel. The fundamental explanation for the importance of placing tariffs on steel and aluminum was defense of our country in the event of war. And right now, just Mm -hmm. as an aside, there is another pending possibility with respect to automobiles and trucks that may have tariffs imposed on foreign produced ones uh, in order to make certain that that we can go to war in style. But when those tariffs fell on aluminum and steel, the first reaction from the steel industry was understandably, wow, we're going to get some relief now. That will improve our profits. And maybe it did briefly, but then what do you know? The steel producers in America begin to expand, expand their production. And after a while, what had been gains temporarily get dissipated through competition. And so now you have a larger industry that is making normal profits. And then as a result of the slowdown in trade across the world, now there's excess capacity and prices begin to fall. And so mm-hmm. when you look at steel products today and the producer price index on it, it's gone down. Profits in the industry are lower. And now it's all the more important to keep that protection because, gee whiz, mm-hmm. it's worse than it was when we started. And as a result of this, not just picking on steel, but aluminum or any other industry, you have a more vulnerable group of individuals and assets than you had before it started with growing pressure to, well, let's keep this thing going because it's even more necessary than we thought it was at the outset. And then, just as you've indicated, this this living, breathing, as I like to think of it, economic organism has now made itself more vulnerable for future change in a competitive world trade environment and more likely that there would be a strong political basis made for keeping the protection going. Once Mm -hmm. we get into that hothouse, we want to keep the door closed, don't want to crack in the window, Uh, Mm -hmm. and if possible, turn up the heat a little bit. It feels so good. (laughs) And when when you're talking about hothouse, just for the listener's benefit, this is a metaphor that um, Adam Smith gave us um, in in his uh, excellent magnum opus, The the Wealth of Nations from 1776. And there he he made the case that um, you could, through subsidies and through trade contrivances and things like that, you could encourage people to grow grapes in Scotland uh, in hothouses. And, you know, you could probably produce some pretty good wine that way, but it would be, you know, 30 times more expensive than wine produced in Portugal. And, you know, the point here is people should produce and specialize based on their their genuine comparative advantage. Don't try to artificially push it one way or the other because you're going to lure them outside of their comparative advantage. You're going to lure them into producing things that really it, uh, it doesn't – they have no business producing. Good point. 
Good point. So, well, let's shift here a little bit um, to a c- couple other questions that we, we've got a few few minutes left. Um, one of the things uh, I wanted to ask you about because you touched on it in your report is uh, impeachment. So, um, as we are speaking right now, the uh, Judiciary Committee is getting ready to uh, vote on articles of impeachment. What kind of effect do you think this is going to have on the economy, if any? Um, tie this in also to the uh, idea of uncertainty, which you uh, addressed earlier in relation to trade. Matt, it's hard, you know, it's hard for us to find a basis based on data and reason uh, to attempt to say, well, let's get an estimate of the economic effects of of impeachment processes when they take place, because it's a pretty small sample. There's only one modern instance, and that's the impeachment of President Clinton. There mm-hmm. are some parallels in timing, just ironically, the impeachment proceedings were voted out in the Clinton episode on December 28, 1998, and then Mm -hmm. the trial in the Senate started in early January. And so when I began to think about this question, uh, ponder it myself in in preparation for the economic situation report, I thought, well, I'll go back and look at data across that period of time when President Clinton's trial was taking place and the impeachment process was underway. You don't expect to see a change in GDP growth instantly with respect mm-hmm. to anything. That's, you know, that is one huge ship that is out there turning around. And so I looked at quarterly growth rates in real GDP following, right on top of, and then following, looking out into the future with respect to the Clinton impeachment process. Did I see anything, any dips and sways that looked unusual? No. Then I looked at the Economic Policy Uncertainty Index, which has been produced looking backwards now, going Mm -hmm. back for decades, even centuries, to see what that index looked like. Was it spiking? Were there any unusual-looking observations on a daily basis, monthly basis during that process? And the answer is, I don't see any. And I think that's partly because a forecast was made by economic agents that this impeachment process is not going to lead to the discharge of a sitting president, which would, I think, have generated huge amounts of uncertainty and questions. Mm -hmm. The Senate vote was 55-45. It takes a two-thirds vote. And so apparently people at that time said, "This, this may be a very unfortunate process that we have to go through with, but I don't think it's going to lead to major boulders of uncertainty at the end. I sort of think a similar forecast is being made right now that uh, one would say it is highly unlikely that this United States Senate would vote two-thirds to usher out our sitting president, Donald Trump. So I think we won't see major effects in association with this impeachment process and the trial that is perhaps yet to unfold. Let me suggest two other possibilities as well. I, I don't discount um, the idea that basically people are saying, oh, it's they're, they're projecting what's going to happen and they're going to say the president is not going to be uh, thrown out. Um, but it's also possible that they're, they may be thinking, even if he is thrown out, maybe it won't make a big difference. And there could be a couple of reasons for this. One, of course, is um, you know under the Constitution, the vice president becomes president. And basically, since the election of 1800, the vice president has been the same party as the president, uh, or at least chosen by him. And um, so, you know, people are seeing some continuity there. And then the other possibility is that I wonder the degree to which we way overestimate 
the the influence of the president on the economy. You know, even today in our conversation, we've been doing it. We've been assuming you know the president is really the one that is in control of the trade war, and he and that you know is one area of policy where certainly Congress has ceded an enormous amount of power to the president, but. On so many matters, the economy, you know, chugs along really based on um, the actions of millions, billions of people. You know, the government can has certain policies that can affect that, um, but also it's just one factor in a sea of many, many factors. And the president is just one lever of influence on that policy in a sea of um, 535, you know, members of Congress and courts and state governments and other foreign governments. You know, I, I wonder if we just overestimate the the importance of the president for the economy in some ways. I think that's a great reminder because you know, through thick and thin, uh, over a long period of time, real GDP growth for this nation has been tripping along at about 3.1 percent. Decade after decade, we have our ups and downs and our recessions and our periods of prosperity, and we certainly have to grant that right now, in recent decades, we are at a lower number than that. But it's, mm-hmm. but it, the number's always explained by how many people go to work every day and how productive are they. If mm-hmm. more people go to work every day and they're more productive, GDP goes up. And so, you know, back back to your basic point, there's, there may be some fireworks going off that are going to affect some of the people who might go to work over the next month or two or over the next year that's going to make this number wiggle up and down. But, but in a sense, it almost has a life of its own. Uh, politics matters. Policy matters a lot. And it mm-hmm. can matter for just a few percentages of the population or the economy. And a few percentages of this big economy does make a big difference in total prosperity. But I think yeah. you, you make a, a really good point. It's, it's what we do on a day-to-day basis, whether we get up and go to work and how hard we work and what we work with that ultimately is going to determine what we are able to take home in our paychecks and the levels of consumption that we enjoy on a year-to-year basis. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, um, we've touched on Adam Smith uh, already. I want to um, talk about another Adam Smith. Uh, he was a, a colleague of mine in, in graduate school, and he uh, actually was your grandson. Uh, holidays are coming around the corner. I want to make a, a plug for a book that you wrote with your grandson, the younger Adam Smith, um, that explores one of the ideas that you are, are intimately associated with, which is the concept of bootleggers and Baptists. Um, do you want to explain that real, real quickly? What 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 the concept there is? Thanks, thanks for the plug for the book and for mentioning my grandson Adam Smith. And and uh, uh, Matt, I have to tell you, it makes me feel a little bit older than I would feel otherwise, knowing that I'm the grandfather of Adam Smith. But uh, <laughs> I'm I'm proud to have the connection. Thank you for mentioning it. But the, but the theory of bootleggers and Baptists, you almost get the message when I say bootleggers and Baptists in the context mm-hmm. of the regulation of the sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages in the United States. Uh, almost every, every state, every city has rules and regulations that relate to the sale, if not the consumption, of alcoholic beverages. It's a highly regulated activity. And over many, many years, there were two groups of people, in, in particularly in rural areas, who favored regulation of, and shutting down liquor stores on Sunday. 
Those were the local bootleggers who were able to eliminate competition at least a day a week when they had the market to themselves. And the good Baptists, and I could say Methodists and other denominational individuals, but the good Baptists who wanted to see a diminution of the consumption of alcohol at least on Sunday. And so you had two very different groups who wanted the same political outcome and so when the issue came up in the state capitol, you didn't expect to see the bootleggers down with placards in front of the state house saying, help your local bootlegger earn a dishonest living. You had the good Baptists and the good Methodists who were down saying, make this world a better place. And so they could take the high moral ground and bring about an outcome that enabled the bootleggers to laugh all the way to the bank. So when we look at regulations almost inevitably, particularly if it's a regulation that has a social element to it, and especially environmental regulations. We see that environmentalists play the role of the Baptists. They are out there making a deep moral appeal, particularly now with global climate change. It's as if we, are, we have the end of the world at stake. What could be a more moral challenging issue than that? And then you have the folks who say, well, you get the regulations tweaked just right, and, uh, and we'll join your effort. And so we have to look not just at regulation, but the characteristics of regulation. Bootleggers on the environmental front love technical regulation, command and control. Tell us exactly how to do it. And by the way, please adopt the way I'm doing it and impose it on my competitors. Mm -hmm. I can raise my mm -hmm. rival's cost. The bootleggers do not like the use of taxes and fees, economic incentives, the use of property rights for bringing about a reduction in the discharge of particular pollutants. The environmentalists more or less are indifferent. They just want to get tough. And so you have mm -hmm. the bootlegger saying, if you will use command and control regulation and choose my way of doing things, you will impose no cost on me, but you will on my competitors. And by the way, mm -hmm. if you will make the rules more stringent for new sources than for old ones, I will dance even faster at your <laughs> wedding. The U.S. has a pattern of environmental regulation that has stricter new source performance standards than for existing ones. Our pattern does not use economic incentives, fees, emission charges, or property rights. We use command and control regulation, which is the most costly way to go about protecting the environment. It can be demonstrated mm -hmm. and has been countless times. But we're making huge progress, and the environmentalists have a lot to celebrate. So we have, uh, we have a world of bootleggers and Baptists that sort of play a tune that helps to predict what, what we will see on the regulatory front. I love that story. And I, I, one of the things I love about it is, well, I suppose there's two things. One is, uh, you know, it is, goes against, I think, so many intuitions that people have that regulations are always pro-consumer and uh, harmful to producers that environmentalists and producers are always on opposite sides of of issues of regulation. 
um, you know, it really cuts against both of those presumptions. And then I, I also love that when you start to dig into it, boy, it really does explain so much of regulation and the way it actually plays out. Um, it, and I, I always find it funny, you know, reporters will occasionally stumble across this and they'll, they'll write a story like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. It looks like these, reg- these um, businesses actually want the regulation. Isn't that weird? Um, and I, whenever I run across those headlines, I think, no, it's not weird at all. You need to re- go read Bruce Yandel, um, and you'll, you'll, you'll understand what's going on here. Well, I hope it keeps shedding some light. It appears that, that, that examples pop up daily, Matt. <laughs> they do. They do. All right. Well, I've, I've uh, already recommended um, your book with your grandson, um, Adam Smith, uh, as a stocking stuffer. Um, what's on your list? What are you hoping to see in your stockings this year? Well, you know, thanks for asking. There, there are a couple of books that, that I've got my eye on, and one is by Andrew McAfee. He is a, a professor at MIT. Uh, he did a popular book that turned out to be a popular book a few years ago, The Second Machine Age, and he has a new book titled, beautiful title, More From Less, uh, where I gather he is uh, explaining what is going on, particularly in the production economy worldwide, how innovation breakthroughs are occurring that enable us to get more happiness, more product, more consumption out of fewer inputs. And uh, maybe an example of it, Matt, would be things like Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, where an existing stock of assets gets utilized more effectively and suddenly we have more transportation services, more places to sleep without having built any more automobiles or any more apartments. But anyhow, it sounds like a promising promising book. A second one that in a sense is a little bit heavier in terms of uh, chocolate-covered chairs that economists like is titled The Marginal Revolutionaries, The author is Jack Wasserman, who is a historian, I believe, at the University of Alabama. And this book is focusing on the conflicts and contributions made or engaged in by the Austrian economists, uh, Hayek, Schumpeter, others. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, either getting that into my stocking or getting it otherwise as the year cranks along. Excellent. Have you got something on your list? Well, I always have a few things. Uh, One of the ones I've been looking at um, is uh, Rent Seekers, Profits, Wages, and Inequality, the top 20%. It's um, a book by, um, I'm probably going to butcher their names, um, Peter Mahalia and uh, Ivan Zeleny. But the the basic idea here that I'm I'm interested in seeing how they explore it is this connection uh, between government favoritism um, and and privilege uh, granting and inequality. I think that uh, it, it's, it's an interesting topic where people from both the left and the right can find some concerns when government uses its considerable powers to favor particular firms, industries, or occupations. Um, and it leads to not just inequality, but also inequity. Plenty to read, isn't there? That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Bruce. My guest today has been Bruce Yandel. Bruce is a distinguished adjunct fellow at the Mercatus Center and a dean emeritus of Clemson University's College of Business and Behavioral Science. He is the author of several economic papers and books over the years. He's uh, one of my favorite economists, as I've already mentioned. Uh, You can read more of Bruce's work at Mercatus.org, and you can also uh, keep up with latest public policy debates if if you check out Mercatus.org slash bridge. Thank you very much. 